You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Go ahead and turn there with me to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to be in verse 1 through 9 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you somewhere. So grab that. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, we would love for you to take that home with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Exodus chapter 34. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. There is the Orphan Care Banquet crowd here. That's right. I knew it. I knew this 1045 was going to be bigger. All right. Well, my name is uh, Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And like Jenna said, we are continuing our trek through the book of Exodus and are in the back half of it. And uh, I'm excited to continue it. We're going to jump straight into Exodus 34. I'm so grateful to only be doing nine verses. Uh, The past two weeks have been full chapters each Sunday. So uh, I I thought that Jenna might appreciate that too. She didn't have to read a full chapter. So her, her lungs have been spared this morning. All right, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump straight in. Would you bow your heads? Father God, we rest our hearts before you this morning. God, we run to your word because it's the only authority that we have. We run to your word because it's the only life that we can receive. God, we run to your word because it brings us joy. God, we run to you this morning because your steadfast love is better than life. And so, God, as we sit underneath your preached word, would you minister to us? Uh, Would your spirit be amongst us? Convict us where we need to be convicted of. Lead us uh, back to Jesus and help us to walk out of here um, more joyful than whenever we walked in, more ready and prepared and equipped to embrace life and walk throughout the trials that face us than we ever have been. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 
So uh, it won't take you long if you start to engage with some of the, um, a lot of the guys here at Providence. Uh, you'll find out quickly that uh, there's a good portion of us that like to play golf. And um, because of that, it means that a lot of us talk a lot about uh, one golfer in particular, and his name's Tiger Woods. And uh, what I can say is true is that it doesn't matter who you are in this room, whether you like golf, don't like it, played it, never played it, or played it once and never played again, uh, which is most people. Um, it, what, what it doesn't matter is everyone in this room knows who Tiger Woods is, for the most part. I don't, I don't want to assume everyone, but there is not a more dominant man in the game of golf than Tiger Woods in the early 2000s. Genuinely, um, it was m like Michael Jordan level, transcend the sport level. You, it doesn't matter who you are, whether, whether or not you like it, you knew exactly who he was because what he accomplished was greater than the sport itself. And this reign of dominance was so large that even Vegas started to set their betting lines not on who would win a major, but was it going to be Tiger or just somebody else? It was, it was literally Tiger versus the field. And so he had an absolute stranglehold on the competition. And the truth is, is that there wasn't anyone close. Uh, but in the game of golf on majors, you have this really awesome thing that happens before uh, these players start to tee off. And this happens especially in major events. Uh, there's an announcer that introduces every player before they do. And in the 2002 uh, Tour Championships, mind you, this is only about four years into Tiger being a pro. And at this point, he's already won 34 events at this place in four years. A lot of players don't even get half of that in their career. In four years, he's got 34 events already underneath his belt. And so he, he absolutely had everyone's attention at this point. And so Tiger was getting ready to play with, uh, with another golfer, Phil Mickelson, who's also pretty popular. Um, and this was early Phil and early Tiger, so you get a little bit of a rivalry. But it's, it's, not, it's a rivalry in that he had to have somebody, but it's also not really. You know what I mean? It, like, it's a rival, rivalry in that a bear rivals with a salmon. You know what I mean? They're like, like it's going to be challenging to grab it, but we know what's going to happen. It's, it's that kind of competition here. But right as they're about to tee off at the 2002 Tour Championship, the announcer begins to announce Tiger. And it's this grand moment where uh, you could tell she'd probably been rehearsing it, waiting for it, because it's not every day you get to announce the greatest player to ever live. And, uh, and she says, ladies and gentlemen, our 12.55 tee time from Windermore, Florida, winner of 34 PGA events, including the 2002 Masters Tournament, the U.S. Open, the Bay Hill Invitational, the Buick Open, the America Express World Golf Championship. And before she could even continue, Phil goes, all right, all right, we get it. And the crowd just erupts in laughter because it's, it's such a sacred moment. Like you would never expect someone to interrupt this like moment in golf. And he does it and it's funny. And I felt bad for her because like I said, I'm sure she really prepped for that moment. And now it's going to be uh, paired with a joke. But what's undeniable, what's undeniable is that when you look at the resume of a guy like Tiger Woods, you speak of, his, of him and what he's done with reverence. If you spoke of Tiger Woods, you spoke of his resume. It's the way that we understand greatness in every arena that we're a part of, whether it's sports, whether it's work, politics, academics. We look at what people have done, what they've accomplished. We look at their resume, and for us, we attribute 
uh, what we would call glory to that. We would attribute greatness to it. And throughout history, names have always carried this level of greatness, this level of weight with them. Uh, This is why you get things like family crests. It's why throughout the Bible you see name changes. People are given names and they mean something. A life direction alters it. Uh, God alters their life direction and then changes their name because of it. Uh, It's why you get throughout history people saying, hi, I'm son of blank, or I'm blank, son of blank. It's, I'm Ty Gaston, son of Ty Gaston. That's, That's what you would do and say, because names carry weight to them. So in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, it should be no surprise that the Lord, who's the name above all names, would use this very tactic. And not just to talk about things that he has done, but about who he is, which is different. Now, there are times in the Bible where God does talk about things that that he has accomplished, but it's not in this moment. Like in the book of Job, when Job starts to question God, God returns back with some questions of his. Where were you when I flung the stars in the sky? And he lists off this whole litany of things that he's done that Job was not a part of. And he's pointing back to things that he can do and has done. But not in this moment. In this moment, God is not going to talk about what he's done, but instead he's going to talk about who he is. And this is wildly different than how we understand glory and greatness. In fact, this was the very reason why Christ was crucified. Because if you look at Christ's resume on what he did before crucifixion, everything that he did was awesome. Everybody would like what he did. I mean, he healed the sick, he fed the poor, he was kind, had dinner with people, laughed a lot likely. I mean, it just seemed like he was a pretty likable dude. So it wasn't about what he did that people had a problem with him. It was who he claimed to be, who he was. He was ascribing glory to who he was because he was God in the flesh. So when he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's a big deal. Because now he's saying, hey, yeah, you remember Moses in the bush? Uh, I am who I am? Yeah, that's me. That's me. This is why Jesus was crucified, not because of what he did. He did great things, but because of who he said he was. And when we look in Exodus 34, like we're about to, we see that God gives and talks about the very attributes that, uh, that mark the nature of God and how he interacts with his people. In fact, I would argue that verses 5 and 6, and we'll get there, are some of the most important verses in the Bible that if, you were, if somebody were to ask you who is the God of the Bible, you would read these two verses. All right, so we need to explain a little bit about uh, what's happened up to this point just to catch ourselves up, uh, but we'll, we'll do it briefly. So um, in Exodus 32, Moses goes up to the mountain. He talks with God. God gives him the stones. He writes with it. says he writes with the finger of God, writes the Ten Commandments on them. He comes down, realizes the people of God have committed idolatry. He gets really angry, throws the tablets down. They explode. And then at this point, you get this interaction between Moses and the people, Moses and God, and Mo- Moses standing in the gap between the God, and the God and the people and interceding for them in multiple ways and asking for God, uh, for God to forgive them. And now Moses, in the middle of one of these prayers, asked to see the glory of God, which God agrees to, but he's not going to show him the full glory because if he does, Moses would be absolutely annihilated. So instead, he says, I will, I will let you see part of me. I'll let you see my backside as I pass. And that's where we arrive here in chapter 34. Moses is going to get instructions before he sees the glory of God. All right, let's jump in it. Exodus 34 verses 1 through 4 says this. 
The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So I always feel bad for Moses here in this moment because it's like a kick while he's down. You know, I, I, I read it when I first read it. I read it like, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which he broke, and be ready by the, I, that's how I read it, and so I feel a little bit bad for Moses, but nonetheless, verse number two, be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. So there are a few things to note here. These tablets were different than the first tablets, in that before God provided the stones to Moses, this time God commands Moses to make them, which I think is significant, and I don't think it's taking away from anything that God is, who God is, or what he's doing. Instead, I think it serves, and a lot of theologians have agreed, that this serves to remind Moses of the broken covenant. That the first covenant I provided for you, the first covenant, everything's there in front of you. This one, you have a price to pay. There are things that you're having to cut out. There's work that you're having to do. And this is important because I think it's a picture of the grace of God. That grace doesn't come without a price. Grace costs something. It's not just something that he's going to receive like last time. It has a cost, a price. God giving them the law again, which he himself wrote again, is a picture of the grace of God. And this is important that he, he allows for this remedial law to be given because God doesn't adjust his standards he didn't look after the, the first commandments were broken and say, okay, well, maybe, I'll, maybe we'll tweak a few here and adjust it here because they, didn't, they clearly failed this first time, so we don't want to give them the same commandments because they're just going to fail again and we'll be in this ongoing cycle. He doesn't do that. He doesn't change it. Instead, he keeps them intact. The law still remains as it was originally. And in many ways, God throughout the scriptures is going to double down and triple down on this very idea. And so God later on in Jeremiah 31 says that he's no longer going to write on tablets of stone, but write on your heart. And so that's important because now there's no longer tablets for you to break, tablets for you to lose or, not, or lose sight of. That's not going to exist anymore because I'm going to write these laws on your heart, the very thing that you cannot do without. So as, in other words, I'm going to write the law on your heart and you can't get rid of your heart because if you do, you die. In other words, my law is life and gives you the life that you need. And then later, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is not only going to, uh, what he says, fulfill the law, but he's going to expand it. He's going to broaden it. He's going to take the narrow lanes that they ride in in Exodus 20, and he's going to open them up. And they're far deeper than we ever even imagined. It's not that they changed. Jesus didn't alter them. He just opened them up to what they were meant to do. So instead of uh, adultery, meaning a spouse uh, cheats on a spouse, instead now, it's even if you look upon another person uh, with lust, you've committed adultery. Now it's no longer anger is just, or murder is just murder, but now if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. So Jesus opens them up to really reveal God's intent for the law the entire time. And that's that it's meant to point us out the fact that God is incredibly holy 
incredibly just, and we are not. So we have to remember that the law remains intact, and this is an, an incredible, joyful, incredibly joyful thing that God gives us. And we can't allow our place to arrive at trying to rationalize our way out of, out of uh, obedience. This is what the enemy did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He tried to rationalize out of obedience, saying like, well, did God, did God really say that? Did God really say you can't do that? Did he really say you can't eat of that tree? He just doesn't want you to be like him. He has a throne and he sits on it. He likes it. He just doesn't want you to have it. Did he really say you're going to die? I mean, is he really going to kill the people that he made in his image and his likeness? It's rationalizing out of obedience. And we, can't, we cannot allow our place, our hearts to get to that place. Where we're saying things like, oh, well, that doesn't really apply. That's just cultural. Or that doesn't really apply because that's the Old Testament. We're in New Testament times. That's Old Covenant, we're in New Covenant. You know, Old Covenant, old man, New Covenant, new man, we're a new creation. Forget the old. We cannot allow our hearts to get to that place. We may end up, the finish line may be us saying things like, oh, well, yeah, that was clearly cultural, and so that doesn't apply to our time and context. We may, we may end up there, but that can't be the starting line for us. We can't, we can't be at a starting place where we're saying, oh, well, that's just cultural, so I completely dismiss it. We can't do that because God's word is God's word, and it hasn't changed, not an iota. And if that's the case, then we need to pay attention to it, and our heart needs to be in the right place where we're going to sit beneath, underneath the authority of God, that we don't want to stand above God's word. We want to stand underneath it. So the Lord is serious, and it's clear that he's serious about the law, so much so that when Moses is receiving the second remedial law, he can't even have goats or cattle anywhere near him. They can't even be on the, they can't even graze opposite of the mountain because if they do, they will just drop dead. And so they have legitimate, God has legitimate commands, legitimate rules and boundaries set up. So that way Moses would understand and the people of God would understand the law that I'm giving you is not only intact, it is incredibly holy and incredibly other. And so he wants to make this known by saying, here's the scene set up. You're going to receive the tablets again. Make sure that you treat it with the respect that it deserves. All right, let's keep going. Chapter, uh, chapter 34, verse 5 through 7 says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's interesting about this moment where God is making himself known and making his glory known to Moses is that it's, it's wildly different than what he did in the beginning. So when he met with Moses, he met with him and revealed himself as the I am. I am, I am who I am. In other words, he made himself uh, known to Moses in the glory of his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. In other words, Moses comes to him and says, who, who can I say sent me? And he says, I am. I've always existed. I've never needed anyone. I've never needed anything. I am who I am. I can, I'm sufficient all by myself and I will always be here and always have been. 
But in the, in the way that God revealed himself to Moses in his self-sufficiency in the beginning, now he's revealing himself to Moses as the all-efficient one. He's not just self-sufficient, but he's sufficient for all of us. And so God makes his glory known by his grace and his goodness and his character. And that is where we jump in to these verses where he's describing himself. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, you cannot understand the glory of God apart from his attributes. And he says this, the first one, it's my point number one, to those in need, God is compassionate and merciful. So I love that God defines himself by this first. God descends in the cloud and with his glory, he passes Moses and all of this is showing his greatness. When you see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the clouds descend, loud noises, thunder and lightning and fire. When you see these things in the Old Testament and New, it's meant to show God's greatness, his greatness, his power. But he doesn't just sit on that because before we and Moses can get afraid of his greatness, God reminds him and us of his goodness. So he descends in the cloud and before Moses could ever be afraid, he says, he says, the Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, compassionate and gracious. God's wrath and God's justice are, are true and they're right and they're good, but that's not where we should start. And we shouldn't start with God's wrath and God's justice because God doesn't start there. And if God is willing to engage us with who he is, And he starts with his mercy, compassion, graciousness. When he starts there, that's how we ought to start. And so it's a bad place for us to engage the world with God's wrath or God's justice. We shouldn't be engaging the world there because God doesn't engage with us there. We, should, we shouldn't engage with God in our, in our community groups and the people that we, we do life with, other believers. We shouldn't be saying when they sin that we bring God's law to them because God doesn't do that. He does in other times, but in this moment when he's revealing his glory to the people of God, he's revealing, he's starting with his mercy and his compassion. And moreover, when we sin and we fall short, when we miss the mark, we shouldn't start with the punishment that we think we deserve because God is merciful and compassionate and gracious. God cares deeply about his children. David said in Psalm 103, 13, says, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Like Israel, we need a compassionate God. And so it's no surprise that later on when Jesus shows up on the scene in the book of Matthew, he looks at the crowds and, and, and he says that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We ought to be at this place where our hearts long for God's mercy, long for God's compassion, and mark him by it appropriately. That's point number one. Point number two, to those who cannot measure up, God is gracious. In other words, God gives unmerited favor to his children. So when I was a teacher, uh, I was a teacher for three years in Aldean ISD prior to coming, uh, coming here at Providence full-time. And uh, there were a lot of students that wouldn't finish their assignments on time, but they knew that I also worked bivocationally at a church, and uh, they would at times test that. Uh, 
they would say, hey, uh, Mr. Gaston, you work for a church, a church, right? So that means you're supposed to show me grace, right? And, and I would say, well, first of all, that's not really grace, and that's not how grace works. Uh, grace would be more like me saying, oh, you didn't finish your assignment? Don't worry, I'll do it for you, and you'll get an A+. That's not what grace is. And also, that's not happening in my class. You see, grace is not you doing your part, earning favor, and then asking God to do the other part. That's not grace. Grace is not a 50-50 deal. Grace is 100% God's favor to the undeserved, which are you and I. Our hearts can be inclined to love God, praise God, and praise Jesus, who's full of grace and truth and has done the work for us and made us right with God, not because we deserved it, or because we did part of it and he, could, he agreed to do the other part, but because he's gracious. That's grace. So for those of us who wear the weight and guilt of not measuring up, whether we're comparing ourselves to other people or just feel like we're always behind the eight ball, for those of us who can't measure up, God is gracious. Number three, to those who are rebellious, God is slow to anger. And to me, this one speaks volumes to my own heart. This speaks of the patience of God. We ought to be filled with joy that God is slow to anger. Israel needed a patient God. They murmured and complained and rebelled, but God showed his patience throughout his time with them. And God has not changed that level of patience. He has not changed that he is slow to anger. We also need a patient God and can praise him that we have one. Our culture right now is more hurried than ever. And it just feels like that until something drastic happens, it's always going to feel that way. The wheels are, are always turning and they're moving at a, miles, a million miles an hour and there doesn't seem like it's going to slow down. And some of that we do to ourselves because we just like to work, work, work. And some of us, uh, things just happen to us and it feels like wave after wave after wave after wave. When it rains, it pours. But regardless, we feel the external and internal pressure to always be moving, always, never rest. Our lives here don't allow for margin. This means that when something doesn't go our way, we have very little patience for it. We have very little patience because if something goes wrong, there's no margin for error. If all the spaces on our Google Calendar are full, then when something doesn't go right, everything will be painful because we don't have time to fix it. We don't have time to replace it. We have no other spots. And moreover, you won't, if all of your spots are full and you feel like you're at this place in this hurried mentality, you will not have the mental space to even consider what went wrong in your heart to even allow you to get there. It will just remain a bubble underneath the surface until everything collapses and you are forced to create margin. This is a recipe for disaster and impatience. However, those that create margin in their life for rest, as God commanded us to, allow space in their heart to consider the Lord and all that he's done. You get time to consider where you went off on your own, time to consider the important areas of your life. I think that there is a direct connection between rest and patience. If you are not resting, my guess is that you're also impatient. Someone that rests understands 
that life doesn't have to move at blistering speeds, but instead it can be slowed down to hear the still, small voice of God. I think there's a reason why God built in rest into what he, into the rhythms that he designed the world. We're meant to, to stop, to pause, to consider these areas of our life, consider where we've gone off, consider where we've been disobedient and how we can walk in them. Consider how we can cultivate our life and our families to flourish underneath the banner of God. But the good news today for us is that even in your rebellion, even in your lack, mistakes, faults, lack of rest, hurried hearts, even in the midst of that, God is still slow to anger today. His, his wick is forever long. He doesn't jump on things. I don't know if you ever had like firecrackers where you get a black cat and it's like the, the gray wicks. You know, it's those, those are the bad ones. Not the, not the green wicks, but the gray ones. You light them and they just straight down. Dangerous, dangerous. God's wick is not like that. It burns slowly. It burns nonetheless, but it burns slowly. Okay, number four, to the unfaithful, God abounds in steadfast love and loyalty. This speaks to the covenant nature of God's love. God's love, steadfast love, points to God's loyalty to his people, loyalty to his covenant, uh, really all of his covenants, including the covenant of redemption that he made within himself. God always follows through. Philippians 1.6, God sees every work to completion that he begins. We don't, I don't. If you were to walk in that office right now, Court and I started a wall and it is not finished and it has been in the same place for about three weeks because I, at times, with things that are like tertiary items for me, have a problem completing tasks. God doesn't struggle with this. God is outside of time. He doesn't struggle with linear lives like we do. God is outside of time and he is able to keep all of his covenants, keep his commands, keep his love moving steadfast and his loyalty strong. Israel needed a covenant-keeping God. In their fickleness, God remained faithful and loving to them. David would end up saying in the Psalms later on that God's steadfast love is better than life. And Moses talks about this steadfast love and repeats it multiple times in verse, verses 6 and 7. It's this word, kased, which uh, we don't really have a, a good translation for. Uh, we don't, so, some people uh, translate it steadfast love. Some people translate it loyal love. Some people translate it loving kindness. But nonetheless, it speaks to God's unending, everlasting love for his people. In the Coast Guard, there's a naval term that gets used to uh, to steer cutters or ships, and it's uh, it's called hold fast. You'll hear the you hear the commanding officer say it when you're whenever you're steering the rudder, hold fast, and that means we're moving in one direction. Hold your speed and hold your bearing. Don't move. Don't go left. Don't go right. Stay straight at the exact exact pace that you're at. And so when you hear the word steadfast, that's not a defensive fortress that never gets penetrated. That is an offensive vehicle that's n that nothing can stop. 
God's steadfast love is better than life. God's steadfast love moves in the direction of his people and cannot be altered. It doesn't move to the left. It doesn't move to the right. It's not lesser than at times and more at other times. It is steadfast, remaining true in the same direction towards his people at all times. And so when you see God's steadfast love and him marking himself by it, don't hear defensive fortress, his steadfast love, it's not going anywhere. That is true, but that's not what it's talking about. It is a singular direction, rocket, never-ending fuel moving in one direction towards you and I. God's steadfast love is better than life. So this is why you would read in the, in the, Old, in the New Testament when God defines himself as love. God is love. It marks who he is. Notice here, and this is the last point here for this. Notice how he says that God's steadfast love extends to thousands. And this doesn't mean just like literally just a couple thousand people. That's not what that means. It's, it's an, old, uh, an old Jewish idiom that's meant to point to his love is unending. It extends farther than you can see. It extends farther than you can imagine. You'll see this happen throughout all of the Bible. They'll talk about this language, thousands, cattle on a thousand hills. That, like this, it's this idea, it, it's not meant to be literal, it's meant to point to a greater truth, and that's that his love is unending and unceasing. All right, next point. To the guilty, God is forgiving. This word means to lift or to carry, and this is what God does with our sins. He lifts the gift, the guilt off of our shoulders and carries it away. And of course, Israel needed a forgiving God, and so do we. Notice the three things that God forgives. He forgives iniquity, so this means turning aside, even just a little bit, turning aside from doing what is right. You do what is wrong, whether you twist it a little bit or twist it a lot, iniquity. Transgression, which means you betrayed the covenant. So he forgives iniquities and he forgives betrayal. And then lastly, sin. And this is any type of moral failure. So Moses in the previous chapters has been praying up to this point, God, forgive their sins, forgive their sins, forgive their sins, saying it over and over and over again. And Moses uh, didn't make God a forgiving God. He was already that. God was already a forgiving God. But when Moses prays it, God listens. God listens and God enacts his will through the prayers of Moses and forgives his people. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus comes on the scene and forgives people, major things happen in the life of, the life of those that are forgiven. And so like when Jesus goes in Mark chapter two, when he goes and forgives the paralytic, he doesn't just walk up to him and says, hey, your, uh, your legs are healed. You can get up and walk now. He doesn't do that. He walks up to him and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And he's healed. There's something about the forgiving nature of God when he extends his mercy and grace to us. It, it changes us. It brings life to a dead body. It brings vigor to a dead heart. And, and this is what's difficult about us whenever we are called at times in our life to extend forgiveness to other people. Because there are stories in this room that I, I am very well aware of and some that I'm not. And there are things that have, that have happened to you that have not been easy, that have been difficult to deal with, that may have happened to you as a child that you're still wrestling with as an adult. 
and you may not be ready to hear this, and in time the Lord will, will make you and prepare you ready, but the truth is, is the reason why forgiveness is powerful is because Christ ab- chose to absolve our punishment. He, ab- he absolved what we did and then gave us his love, his mercy, his grace. And so when we truly forgive people, we do the same thing. They committed a wrong against us. We absolve them of the weight of that, and we extend love and grace and mercy. Grace being they get what they don't deserve. Mercy meaning they don't get what they do. That's why forgiveness is hard, but that's also also why forgiveness is powerful. Because it doesn't make sense, genuinely. It doesn't make sense. It should be an eye for an eye. No, if you do this, you get this. You do A, you get B. But the gospel would call us otherwise. And God, even in the Old Testament, would mark himself as otherwise. I am a forgiving God. I will give you grace, which you don't deserve. And I will give you mercy. I won't give you what you do. We should praise God for the amazing forgiveness that he extends to us. But we can't stop with these attributes. These are the good ones. But there's some tension that gets created in this passage that we have to pay attention to. Uh, because, again, this is the Lord revealing himself. So, verse number 8. But who, uh, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, this one creates a little bit of tension because in the verse before that, he said he forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. But now he's saying he's not clearing the guilty. So which is it? Which is it? You see, we don't get to pick and choose which attributes of God we want as if it were a buffet. Those who choose to reject God will be held accountable. Just because God is compassionate and gracious doesn't mean the guilty who remain unrepentant get a free pass. That is the difference between the forgiveness side of God and the just side of God. The forgiveness side of God means that when you recognize you have fallen and you humble yourself before the Lord and are in need of the grace, need of the mercy. You are the sick in need of the healer. When you are in that place, God is forgiving and gracious and kind and merciful. When you don't do that, when you stand in the place of haughtiness, I have not done anything wrong. Yeah, maybe I've got a few problems, but it's really not that bad. When you stand there, that kind of mercy and grace doesn't get extended. In fact, God says he does not clear the guilty. The mention of God's consequences that we see here on several generations doesn't mean that grandchildren will be punished for things that grandparents have done. Uh, It just means that as unrepentance continues, God's justice continues. That's all that it means. It's uh, It's another one of those idioms that we talked about. And the truth is, is that all of us fall in this category. All of us fall in this place where we have sin in our life and we have the opportunity to either repent of it or not repent of it. And the reason why God talks about this in terms of generations is because if you're, let me be clear, your children are watching you live right now. Young people are watching how we live right now. I don't want to just isolate those that are single in the room. Young people are watching and looking up to you right now as you live. And they learn much more by what's caught than what is taught. 
They learn much more by what they see than what you tell them. Now, talking to them is important. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, you got to talk to them about God. But they learn much more about how you live. The way that you treat others will be the way that they treat others. The way that they love other people will be the way that they, uh, the way that you love other people will be the way that they do. The way that you give compassion and grace to them when they fall is the same way that they will. They will do whenever other people fall. But the opposite's true too. If you live a life where you are not paying attention to the Lord, not repenting of sin, you can't say, I'm sorry for the life of you. If you live that way, they will also become that. And not because of genetics. Because you, your life is nurturing that thing inside of them. And so your kids, whether you like it or not, are always being catechized. Whether by the world, by you, by others. But they're watching and they don't even realize it. And so we have an opportunity as parents and those that are influential in the lives of young people to push them back to the Lord, to direct their eyes back to the king that loves them, that's merciful, that's gracious. So please, as parents, do not be afraid to say you made a mistake. Don't be afraid to go to your children and say, I'm sorry, daddy didn't act like Jesus there. Will you forgive me? It does nothing but point to a great God. And so all of us will fall short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us, but there's good news. So how do you reconcile God's justice and his love? At the cross. There God poured out justice and at the same time displayed his love. God was both the one that was just in that moment and the justifier. He received the punishment that we deserved and gave the love that we didn't. God will judge and punish sin. That has to be made known. Punishment for sin will take place. Either Jesus received your punishment and judgment on the cross, or you will face it on your own. But listen, we're far worse than we even realize. And there may be a moment in some of us right now where we're thinking to ourselves like, yes, I, I have fallen short. I don't live up. You just don't understand how my life is going. I've, make a, I've made a lot of mistakes. And the truth is, is that those things may be true, but you are far worse than you know. But the good news is that God's, God loves you more than you do, more than you know also. You're far worse than you think you are, but he loves you more than you think he does. You may say things like, I gotta, yeah, I gotta just, all these things that are going on. But the truth is, is God's love and mercy is for you right now. And there's no sin that you have done that, is, that will ever overcome the mercy of Jesus. You may sin like crazy and walk away like crazy, but you cannot outpace the love and mercy of God. You can't. We are, we are not steadfast. God's steadfast love moves in a singular direction towards his people and never stops moving. We're all over the place. But God's love for you is steadfast and moving straight in your direction. And the reality is that this idea of God's mercy and grace extended to us should have a profound way that we approach sin and walking in holiness. Okay, last couple verses. Exodus 34, verses 8 through 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, 
If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So Moses sees God's glory. God proclaims who he is. And how does he respond? With God's just judgment in mind and steadfast love, God, or Moses responded with worship and prayer. Moses bowed down. What other response could he have? Isaiah does the same thing when he sees God in the temple. As soon as you understand God's holiness and who he is, you have no choice but to bow down. How could you? How could you not? This is how you respond to the glory of God. He bowed down and then he offered a prayer, but only after he worshiped. Adoration always precedes supplication. We, our heart should be adoring God, have this place of adoration before we're ever asking him for things that we need. God wants to get good gifts to his children, but he wants you to adore him because he is the gift. He is the gift that we need. He's all that we need. Adoration should always precede supplication. A gratefulness for, what, for who God is and what God has done should always precede the things that he gives you. So Moses bows down in adoration and then lifts up a prayer in supplication, asking God to forgive the people. And if you've been taking tally at this point, this was about the fifth time that he had prayed since the golden calf. So in a chapter and a half, he's prayed five times to God, pleading for the same thing. This prayer sounds oddly familiar, but it also serves as a good example for us because the book of Hebrews tells us that because of Christ, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We can go near to God and ask him as a good father. And we can do that with confidence because of Jesus. All right, I'll conclude with this. A couple of questions. If you're a Christian in the room, my question for you would be, where have you taken your eyes off of the Lord? Do you find that your soul is so hurried and frantic that you have forgotten to consider him? Have you forgotten his mercy, his grace, his compassion that's extended out to you, his steadfast love that is moving in your direction? Have you lost sight of that? Well, the good news is that the Lord has been patient with you and his mercy is holding fast in your direction. You have not lost your place at the table. I know it's tempting when we fall away or when we fall short that we can think that, oh, well, God's going to kick me out of my seat and give my chair to someone else. That's not how it works. Your place at the table was not based on your merit in the first place, so you can't lose it based on your lack of merit. You still have a place at the table. For the non-Christian, for the non-believer, I want you to see this is why we celebrate. This is why we worship. We worship because we have a gracious God abounding in steadfast love, and it's unending. There's nothing that exists like that in here. Nothing physical you could ever encounter that exists like that. Everything that we encounter is conditional, or at least it feels like it. But there's a God who's waiting, who extends love to you, not based on any conditions or merits that you have to give. You need to remember that your sin will be paid for either by Christ on the cross or by you. But the good news is that the grace and mercy of Christ is offered to you this morning. 
and not, you, you, you need not bring anything. The only thing you need to bring is the, the sin that you have. As Jonathan Edwards says, it requires nothing, nothing of you except the sin that made it necessary. Let's pray. Father God, the, the well of your truth is, is unending. It's the nourishment that we need and don't allow us to go anywhere else. God, your steadfast love is better than life, and I pray that's true for us this morning. There's no greater place we can go, no better words we can hear. May our hearts proclaim with the words of Peter, where else can we go? You alone hold the words of life. And so God, as we worship now, would, would you help our worship to be full, to be full? Would, our heart, would it be that our hearts would adore you more than we adore anything else in our life? God, help us to see the very attributes that you proclaim. Help us to see your glory. And God, where there are ways that we have fallen away or fallen short, we ask that you would show them to us kindly so that way we can repent and turn back to the God who loves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.